Shake your shakers high, shake up really high. Shake them any way they wanna go. Shake your shakers high, shake really high. Shake them any way they wanna go. Let's go! Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Into the Spotlight. I'm Ryan. And I'm Morley. Our guest today is a singer-songwriter, performer, arts educator, and skateboarder. He's released multiple children's CDs, an indie progressive folk rock album, developed and performed in an interactive rock apparatus for children, and toured as a competitive skateboarder. And even though he was skating with the Z-Boys in the 70s, he still tears it up on the halfpipe to this day. I have vivid memories of listening to his music in long car rides as a young kid, and watching him pop up into a handstand on his skateboard and proceed to ride 100 feet down the street on his hands. So without further ado, please welcome today's guest, my cousin, Charlie Kurt. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Yeah. (laughs) Charlie, uh, thanks so much for coming on. Morley, thank you for having me. My pleasure. Um, So Charlie, how, what is the story of Charlie Kurt? Uh, from skateboarding in the 70s to rock operettas for children. How did this all come to be? Uh, you guys, are you guys fans of Cool Hand Luke? <laughs> Where he said, I never, ever planned anything. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the answer there. <laughs> How did it come to be? It just, yeah, it just flowed one thing into another. But, you know... Uh, uh, skateboarding does lend to a creative mindset. So a lot of it's about you know making up tricks, and uh, I, I think it's a I think a, and a lot of skateboarders are into music, and a lot of musicians are into skateboarding. So it it helps to develop that way of thinking in terms of being creative. Does that does that answer your question a little bit? Yeah, okay. yeah. No, I feel a similar thing. Like with um. Like you can integrate music into so many like physical activities. I find the same way with like leather working and then editing videos of it to a certain extent. Cause like you kind of like fade into a shot and ramp up with the music as you're doing a movement. Um, and it all feels uh, very musical in a way. I can definitely see how those would link together. Like a transition or a crescendo or something. Yeah. yeah. And it's a physical activity too. And like, you know, I used to do a lot of sports like football and swimming when I was in high school, but there's something about kind of like being in the zone in the moment that kind of helps you see things in a certain way. It's even why I'm doing directing like short films or something like that. Even like, I just love being on set and everything can kind of like all the distractions kind of fade away and you just focus on what's in front of you at the task at hand and you can just excel from there. Yeah. It's taking the moment. Not easy to do. Not easy, <laughs> but but very fulfilling. I mean, this moment in time right now, where we're recording November twenty twenty, is is quite a moment. Um, I know that your whole business and teaching and way of life has basically been turned upside down because, in terms of doing in person performances for kids at schools and in person teaching, I mean, none of that is really a, an option right now. So, how have you sort of addressed that and? actively adapting to this situation yeah it's um uh like monday it's we're starting another round you know of like lockdowns yeah Mm -hmm. so uh how what's happened to me was like directly we were doing keyboard classes in the schools i had had a staff of like 10 people you know i I was i've been working on it with a curriculum i've been designing curriculum for like 
well over 10 years. And in the winter term, I had 120 students a week. And in the spring term, I had zero students a week. Hmm. So it's a large chunk of my business. But I do one-on-one lessons, and those are online. But that's it's still hard to learn how to do that. It's a different way of communicating. And yeah, yeah. you have to be really creative. You can create a lot of ways. So basically, you know, if you're teaching lessons, a piano lesson, your student's going to come into your lesson with the music. But if you're doing it online, you have to have a copy of their music, hmm. um, you know, in front of you. And you and whatever you tell them to write on their score, you write on your score, so you can see what they're doing. Wow, yeah. it's very analog. It's almost like um, it's like going back to the days of like talking over the phone, someone, and you each have a copy of it in your hand, yeah. and you're you're going over a document together. Yeah, it's it's you know, and then and then you know vocal cues and facial cues and all that stuff is at the window and it's very yeah. different like communication very challenging the way the way you use your voice um if you can create some sort of calm atmosphere hmm. you know if you can and and focus the kids and um and it's, it's impossible to do without the parents like if they're young kids the parents have to be there it's pretty right. much mm-hmm. pretty much so you're asking a lot of parents who are scrambling to make their own ends meet and uh, it's tough on them. It's really tough. I think I think the tough part's about to start because it's always been warm out. Yeah, and, and we've already been doing this lockdown nonsense for like since April, more right. or, or maybe even March, like mid March. So I did have two open mics canceled. I think I'm the only person. There's a, a place called the Painted Lady, uh, and they do they do live open mics, and they have a feature artist every Monday. And I was supposed to be the feature artist like mid March. I was the first featured yeah. artist to get cut. Oh no! And then I was I was rescheduled for I think it was I think it was November first or something like that, or November second. And then that's when they had to they had to couldn't allow people in the bars. So I was supposed to be the first one back in the bars. They had to cut it out. So I I think everyone remembers their first like um, appointment or scheduled mm. thing or engagement. When COVID started, that got canceled. Yeah, I think for me it was my birthday because my birthday is March twenty third, and uh, Eden and I were—I don't know what we were going to do, but we were doing like an event for each other's birthdays because both of us had birthdays in the spring. Um, and she was like, "Yeah, I had to. Uh, I had to. We ended up going for a hike. I was actually going to get her tickets to come from away the show. Ah, have like you seen it? And, uh, you never saw I, it. No, I haven't. We were going to go see it, but then uh, we couldn't go. Like that was right when lockdown started. So you're going to get tickets for Eden's birthday? Yeah, for us both to see it together. Neither of us has seen the show. Oh, because I got tickets for my girlfriend's for her birthday to to go see Come From Away. Come From Away. Was like this, did you, were you able to go? A year ago. It was a year ago. Gotcha. And it was fantastic. It was a great show. In fact, I, yeah, Ryan, I think you were telling telling me about it as well. Yeah, I saw it the summer I was just finishing my master's. So it was like, yeah, summer 2019. But uh, it's hopefully once we can get to a, a time once we're removed from COVID and lockdowns. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful show. It's like, well, like I haven't had the opportunity to see a lot of live theater performances, but that was just so everything from like uh, the acting, the dancing, the music. It was just really well done. Very impressive how they put that together. And it's an empathetic yeah. story. And that's Canadian. That, yeah, it's yeah. very Canadian as well. People can't get enough of empathy because there's so little of it, right? And it's, that's what it's all about. Like you couldn't go anywhere else in the world where they would treat you like that. 
No, exactly. Mm-hmm. Especially showing that humanity on such a tragic yeah. and horrible yeah. day. That's that's powerful. Yeah. That's yeah. very powerful. And they do it well. They really make that clear. Of all the things they do well, that's the, the coolest thing. And Charlie, isn't that that's a core part of some of your live shows, right? Is is empathy? I know you have a character in one of your shows, isn't it? Empathina? Yes. Something like that. Mm. Yeah, it's a rare quality. Uh, and there are people that believe that they are empaths. <laughs> in fact, the girl, one of the girls that was playing the role, she did a whole. We I filmed her just like describing how she was an empath and how that, you know, what that meant and how that felt and. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it is the, it is the quality that will get us through, um, like COVID-19 and also the quality that will get us through climate, the climate crisis, because the road is what happens when you're not empathetic. We were talking about the road before. That's an example of people just eating other people because they're hungry and they're not empathetic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of what the worst case scenario with COVID would be is just not caring about other people's well-being and being selfish. I mean, selfishness would be the worst case scenario. Yeah, like not wearing a mask. A pandemic. Exactly. Can't you wear a mask? Like how hard is that? How <laughs> much of an imposition is that? Yeah. What is that process like trying to integrate, like imparting empathy onto kids into a live show with the music, with the visuals? Like I know your shows are incredibly visual. I've seen videos like there's the costumes, there's the props, right. all the colors and everything. How do you how do you go about imparting that into a performance like that? Well, a lot of it is uh, the, the the character empathy, and it has to do that. Um, that's kind of her job to personify empathy, and and it's the way she deals with the kids, and it's the way that she deals with like the animal life and the plants, and uh, um. I guess there's um, maybe you see inequality in other things and other people, mm-hmm. and that's that's how like she she helps them along, she gets them to wow. do things. It's a very interactive show, and she would be we try we're trying to get kids to sing, dance, and drum during the show in very diff- various different ways, and she will encourage the kids to do that, like a teacher. And I guess the teacher teachers have to be empathetic. To the needs and abilities of the, of, the, of the students and it's very true like like you just brought up that point because i was looking at your mission statement and one thing that caught my eye that made me smile was you kind of highlight the importance of allowing children to be expressive and experimental with their creativity and you mentioned like how it's important for teachers to be empathetic to create a, a, a space where kids can feel comfortable and where they feel that you know they can try out different things that feels right to them and helping them refine that and what has that been experience been like for you? Well, with younger kids, uh, like you're trying to teach them this piece, like adults tend to be very structured and kids mm-hmm. are, are not, they're not structured learners. Like, I mean, they can learn to be, but I think that just more, they, I think learning for them is more like, I'm curious about this thing. I want to pick this thing up. I want to touch it. I want to hold it. I'm sort of tactile, spatial. Right. And so what little kids will do is they'll, you put a keyboard in front of them. They're going to f- try and experiment to see where those sounds are what a high sound is, what a low sound is. Like they don't care about this linear nonsense about reading notes and what note, what rhythm is this? And it is nonsense. Like it really is. <laughs> like it's, uh, and so they, they also will be very proud 
if they say they wrote a piece, sometimes for them writing a piece is writing letters that represent notes, just writing a bunch of letters, a stream of letters on a piece of paper. And to them, that's a song. And, mm. you know, if, if you want to be snotty about it as an adult, you can go, that's not a song. That's like, you know, there's no, there's no, you know, you, you can't, ex A could be any A on the keyboard or whatever, but it's vitally important to them. You have to understand that, that hey, it's important to them, whether or not it doesn't, you know, on the same wavelength as them, that, that's not the point. So, yeah. yeah, it's the melody of sounds that, you know, rings to their ears. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So then, I mean, I've noticed in, in some of your music, like there does seem to be a world music influence, mm. kind of like Peter Gabriel. Yeah. So do you find that that kind of plays into it because you get some of those like non-Westernized, non-structured musical influences um, that kind of children tend to gravitate towards in creating music? Yeah, I think children are, they do like to hear sounds they haven't heard before. Whereas adults want something generic. I mean, country music, it's the same song, been the same song for a hundred years, <laughs> right? It's like safe, it's easy. So get somebody with a nice smile and a nice voice and nice teeth to sing a song and everybody's happy. With kids, yeah, I mm know -hmm. they're, they're curious. I did a lot of work for the Ontario Arts Council. You're talking about things that shape the way I see things. And they're very much, um, they, 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 they open your mind to different cultures. And, and you, know, uh, you know, you don't want to appropriate somebody's culture, but you, you want, like I work with the real artists. I, I would meet people along, like from, at, at festivals and say, could you play on my CD? And they would bring their indigenous instruments and play. That's great. That's really fun. Wow. Yeah. I, I love like the whole world music kind of scene. I was watching, we were, we were talking about this yesterday. Um, I've been getting really into watching like concert videos during COVID missing live performances. And I, I went down a rabbit hole one day of watching performances by the talking heads, which just have like an incredible stage presence. I don't know. I don't remember the lead singer's name, but his energy on stage is like incredible. And, um, they're them playing on stage with like African drummers, um, and like six guitars at once. There's just <laughs> so much energy and vibrancy there. It's incredible to watch. Yeah. Amazing, amazing band and open-minded kind of musicians, quirky, like they're alternative. Right. And yeah. so uh, sometimes I listen to Q107 more so 102.1 but now q107 is playing stuff that used to be you know played on 102.1 only so i, th I think yeah. in a sense like for the, the for the non-toronto listeners those are the uh those are like the kind of alternative um what would you call it like alternative rock. Yeah, the alternative rock. music stations yeah. and then classic rock so the alternative rock does become the classic rock like elvis yeah. presley was probably pretty quirky when he came out right doing a lot yeah. of different things so he would not have been mainstream when he first came out but he's pretty mainstream yeah. his his image is certainly mainstream now some of it though does seem to stay more on the fringes though like i listened to some of um genesis's mm. Je the band genesis mm. some of their more out there stuff and listening to it today it still sounds pretty out there with the early stuff yeah yeah it's amazing and very keyboard based mm. too like keyboards are very prominent. I'm 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 a keyboardist by I studied classical music. I studied like classical piano, which is why I always teach piano more than anything else. But um, it's interesting how progressive rock is shaped. A lot of the keyboardists are classically trained, and you hear mm -hmm. a lot of that music in their playing. I, I'm thinking of Genesis, uh, maybe some Supertramp stuff, 
I mean, obviously there's some blues stuff in there and some other stuff, but some of the stuff like you can hear, oh yeah, this guy studied classical piano. Um, uh, there was a Jethro Tull album. It was a live album. And the, um, uh, the guy uh, played, the piano player, John Evan played Debussy's Gollywog's Cakewalk. I'd never heard it before. I thought like, whoa, what's that? You know, and the guy's an amazing keyboardist and he's like, he's studied it on a pretty serious level. You just hope that you don't create something that nobody can relate to because it's once classical that once that serious like studying serious music is in your system, it's hard not to, you know, some people may be offended by it. The whole punk movement was, you know, uh, a reaction against that kind of music, that kind of bombastic. I mean, you can think of pro progressive rock as bombastic and these people are taking themselves either too seriously or just too, just too wacky, you know? Hmm. I mean, I've, I've felt in my own personal creativity that like, if I feel strongly enough about what I'm doing, then at least it will find an audience with other people who find that. Yeah. But maybe at a certain point, if you're, if you're really trying to be out there and different, you lose sight of like in the songwriting, you lose sight of that yourself. Like it's no longer so strong to you. I, I don't know. I just feel like if, if you're creating something that you feel so strongly about, then you're bound to find other people who will also find that way. Unless it's so you're so different that those people just are far few and far between. I was, I was watching an interview with Woody Allen. And I always think of Woody Allen as a successful U S filmmaker, but he doesn't see himself like that at all. He says like, no, like I write stuff like I'm a pretty quirky writer. There's not that many people in the U S that like me. It's more the like Europeans. I think he, he can survive. He survived over the years because Europeans like his stuff, but, the, the the problem if you if you really want to do something creative and something out there is only people that really appreciate that will listen to it. Like it's more work for people, right? Mm-hmm. Like like again, a country song they've pretty much heard the song before anyway. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, it's interesting with like Woody Allen's films because one of his films, Midnight in Paris, is one of my all time favorites. And the way he's able and his I mean his films, every filmmaker, especially the successful ones have a very distinguishable style. Same thing for like Tarantino or Richard Linklater and Woody mm. Allen. And his very, movies are very, you know, dialogue based, you know, mm. the whole story is about these two people and like they're well acted and, you know, but they're not made to be commercial billion dollar, you know, successes. They're just made to be small and, you know, focused that way. But, you know, it's just in terms of storylines, that's what brings people in. Which you see that with a lot of other smaller, more European arts, art house films as well. Same thing here in Quebec. There's a lot of Quebec art films mm-hmm. that are in that European style as well. And it's just, there's just something about, like, even though it's very, like you could say, low stakes in the smaller scale, but the situations are relatable to a lot of people. And that's what brings us, that's what attracts us to them. And they may not be, you know, a massive success right away, but they can build like that over time. Like the before films, the before trilogy, there are films that, you know, they're like the lowest <laughs> uh, box office movies to ever uh, get sequels, but they've been able to establish a really well-known presence, you know, 20, 30 years on. Yeah, these things do pick up momentum, but like they, the classics do, uh, I think they do build up some steam over the years. And, and I think that they, uh, the, the companies do make their money back eventually over time if it's good but maybe not when they could lose their shirts right away. Yeah. It's probably hard, harder to sell that to a production company though. Y'all, you'll make it back in 20 years. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. They don't want to hear no, that. They don't want to hear that. No way. No, it's all, it's all uh, like a lot of it's about the short term gain rather than the long term gain. Yeah. 
which is unfortunate in many ways. Well, it's the entertainment business. Yeah. Uh, unless you see it otherwise. I mean, people do, right? Like it, it is a, like there's arts and there's entertainment and it's like a, it's like a, a pendulum and something, you know, you swing back and forth or it's, or it's, it's just a, a range of what something could be. I tend to watch things that are far more like arts, edu- like they, 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 they make you think. They don't preach to you. They don't tell you a linear story. They, they, they make you fill in the gaps or make you think not what the person that's producing it think, but whatever, however you relate to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always trying to find that very difficult balance between art and commerce. It's possible, yeah. but it's very tricky, very, very difficult. Yeah, and the high arts, I mean, it's even more difficult, like ballerinas and classical pianists. And- oh, God, yeah orchestras and everything <laughs> speaking of orchestras i've got a conductor joke okay right. it's an original joke how do you become a conductor how hold the positive and negative ends okay i'm not getting it yeah. <laughs> like oh wait no now i get it <laughs> oh it just took it it was a slow burn sorry. i got it <laughs> that's good uh, um i want to i want to come back around a little bit um to skateboard yeah. because we, we we touched on it but i want to get the story because i know you said that you didn't plan you you just you, you surfed your way along you found your way to where you are now but i think a lot of people would be interested in hearing how you kind of discover the world of skateboarding sort of right when it was becoming popular in the seventies, um, that story, and then how you have taken skateboarding it and kind of used it as a creative inspiration and continued doing it to this day. I mean, I know I've seen you, um, you still tear it up. Uh, yeah, I think the, uh, the basic philosophy is if you're not learning new tricks, you're finished skateboarding. So the, even Tony Hawk is always trying to learn a new trick. Like that, that is the definition of a skateboarder and maybe the definition of a songwriter. Once you stop writing songs, you're no longer a songwriter. Billy Joel apparently hasn't written a song since 1992. Anybody just does shows. Wow. Okay. So how do we, first of all, I, I used to do it with my brother. My brother and I are like 16 months apart. And so we were just lumped into one organism called the boys. The boys are doing this. The boys are doing that. We're in those newspaper articles together. Anyway, we live beside guys that were two sets of brothers. They may have even been twins or they may have been very close in age and they had a skateboard. Um, and they gave us the skateboard to mess around with. And when I say skateboard, I mean a piece of wood with metal wheels on it. Like <laughs> I, I'm actually old enough to remember when the urethane wheel was invented. I was like, I, they talk about that in Dogtown and Z-Boys. Yeah, like right? when, the guy, when they come out with the urethane, yeah, it's the best. Yeah. And it did make a big, like you can't imagine what metal wheels would have felt like, or then clay wheels. And then you're, you're just sliding around everywhere, right? You just hit a stone or something like, like they describe in the movie and you just, just kill yourself. Like it just stops dead. Yeah. And you slip out. And so anyway, it was luck that they gave us the skateboard and, and, but we were infected by it. Like we couldn't stop doing it. It was so much fun. Um, and then, uh, then we got, you know, skateboards from, from the U S we got, um, at one point, we, we ordered these boards we saw in a magazine. They were $75. And we thought, oh, that must mean for two two skateboards. Like, because I was getting one for my brother as well. It was like, no. It's like, like, and that seemed like a ridiculous amount of money to pay for a skateboard. But anyway, 
we were skateboarding around and we got picked up by a sponsor, like a, a, a guy that made skateboards, saw skateboarding and put us on his team. And that kind of started us off competing and doing demos and testing equipment and skating with the guys. It was actually the Sims team. Uh, Tom Sims is the guy who's like a longboarder who competed and he also helped develop the snowboard. He's a surfer as well. Anyway, I just want to shout out my sponsor because you talk about creative. Um, he, I think he was a creative genius. And unfortunately, he, he recently, maybe five years ago, maybe last, he, he passed away of, you know, from cancer. And uh, I didn't get a chance to say goodbye to him, but I did go to his send-off, which was incredibly well attended. And uh, so his name was Willie Winkles. He's a German guy. And, but his actual name was Wee Willie Winkles. And I, I think the the, the Wee is German for junior. So if your dad if your name's if your dad's name is Willie and you are christened Willie, I think it, you're Wee Willie. So that was that was literally the guy's name. We didn't believe it. He showed it to us on his driver's license. And so, in, in keeping with our theme of creativity, he created the, the seven ply maple board, and all skateboards today. Any board you buy, that popsicle stick stick shaped board with a double kick. Right. Seven fly maple because it has the right amount of flex and strength. Huh. And this guy came up with it because dad owned a woodworking factory in Brampton. And he thought, well, plywood would be good because it has flex, and it, but it would be strong. Um, so that that's like to create something that's lasted 50 years. You know, they can't improve upon. Like I have the original boards. I have like the demo boards, like the things we're testing out. He'd always come up with some crazy thing, like he put graphite in the middle. Um, and so, as far as I know, he's credited with the creating seven ply maple board. He was also the first person to create um, a half pipe with flat in the middle. A, a, a pipe used to be a, like a perfect circle, but mm. he thought that it didn't give you enough time to recover. Like you wanted to be able to set up your next trick, your next wall. So he put space flat in the bottom. Uh, he also was instrumental with Tom Sims and Lonnie Toft in creating the snowboard, like the modern snowboard today. Like right. It was done up in Blue Mountain. Um, and the, the original ones like were this weird, like looked like a banana board, but like a snowboard and had like a leash on the front and you'd hold the leash. And it was just weird. Like, and they finally figured out, <laughs> you have to strap your feet to the board. Like there's no, like you can't do it. Like a skateboard, you can jump off. You get into trouble, you bail. On a snowboard, it doesn't, you can't. Nope. Ball. And if that edge catches, you're going to go flying like head over heels. But I don't think they, I think they might be working on release bindings now, but that's just, that's, and so he was, he did that. And I think the wakeboard as wow. well, he worked on a modern wakeboard. So he was truly a creative genius. And there's other things too. I, I just don't remember all the things. So anyway, Canadian hero in terms of creativity, in terms of like, you know, huge impact on the sport of skateboarding or the, or the, whatever you want to call it art form of skateboarding. He, he, you know, he, he's to me, he's like, as a fact, like a biggest influence as the, as the, um, Dogtown guys were, they were more style, but he was more like function, you know, and tell that boys are all made. I don't think you can buy one. that's yeah. on seven ply maple. Huh. Like you have to look pretty hard. So, yeah. So he, he made our childhoods like this guy, he was a great sponsor, like nicest guy, always like, you know, looking out for us, giving us equipment, driving us around. I mean, we were minors, right? 
And he was <laughs> like, he was, you know, maybe in his early twenties. It's hard to remember, you know, like, um, yeah. but he like all those articles from the newspaper. Well, with these two of them, I'm wearing one of his shirts and that was, he got us in the paper. So yeah, it was great. Yeah, that was a great part of my childhood. I'll never, you know, never, and it's too bad that he's no longer with us because he deserves like, you know, the credit like that he's did. People should know who that guy is. Yeah. I mean, I haven't heard of him. No. I never even have thought about like who invented the skateboard. You're right. It's like an unchanged invention almost. Yeah. It has been like the same kind of boards since the eighties. I mean, the shapes have changed, but the, the seven ply maple hasn't like the number seven. That has not changed. <laughs> nobody, nobody said, well, make them a little thicker and make it five fly. You know, it's not been changed. Uh, yeah. Uh, so in terms of creativity, uh, yeah, call him out. Uh, and then the Jeff, should I mention the Jeff Grosso story? Yeah, <laughs> please. It's yes. a funny story. It's one, one, one day I'm out skateboarding around. We, there was a park called the Super Bowl in Toronto, mid to late, late 70s. There was some guy from the... Toronto star then he wanted to shoot a picture of a skateboard and he chose me to shoot and he was like said well why don't you try this why don't you try that and I said no let me show you this move this is the move you want to shoot me um, skateboarding so he listened to me like which was good uh anyway that um so I did the trick and the trick was in the newspaper now the trick and I don't know what inspired me to do this trick but um it it's it's like you, you go up a wall and you grab the nose of your board and you pivot on the tail. So all the, all four wheels come off the surface. You pivot on the tail, you come back down. So, so it's either called a tail tap or a tail block, depending on like what you believe the terminology is. So what was interesting about the way I did it was I, I'm regular as opposed to goofy foot, which means my left foot is forward. I grab the nose with my right hand doing a frontside kick turn, like a frontside turn, meaning your, your toes are to the wall, to the wave. Okay, so if you can see in the picture, my body's all like contorted, right? And so, <laughs> so it's probably not the way you're supposed to do it, but like there is no proper way to do anything in skateboarding. That's supposed to be the joy of it. Right. So, yeah. um, so anyway, you know, I had the picture taken and I haven't, you know, stored away, whatever. My parents have it up on their wall and whatever. So one of my friends, a skateboarding friend, was was going through like library archives and he finds this picture and he posts it on Facebook. And some guy says, well, I've never seen anybody photograph doing that trick. Um, it, it, it's, it's formally called a frontside crail tap. Crail meaning grabbing the board with your the back hand, not the front hand. If my my shoulders would have been parallel to the board if I grabbed with my left hand, but because I grabbed with my right hand, my body's all contorted. Anyway, so they put it on Facebook, and people are like, you know, talking about it. Somebody that says, "Has anybody ever been photographed doing this trick?" And they're kind of like, "I don't know." And then somebody says, "Well, why don't you ask Jeff Grosso? He would know. Anybody would know." Jeff Grosso would be um, a contemporary of Tony Hawk's and also a great promoter of the sport. He had a show called Love Letters. So somebody sends him the picture. Uh, and and then I contacted him on uh, I don't care, Instagram, I think it was. 
And his, his comment was like, yeah, real radical, Charlie. Like, you know, great. And I thought like, oh, I was kind of hoping for more, more. <laughs> anyway, he, then he posted the, the shot on his Instagram and he got like 2000 hits. So my little picture got 2000 hits with Jeff Grosso, which would be a big deal for me. And then, and people were saying, yeah, you gotta, you gotta give this guy the trick. Like, cause nobody was actually shown doing it before. There's a date on the picture. Like nobody could like, nobody said, Oh yeah, I, I was, I can show you pictures of myself doing that trick as well. That, you know, so you could say that I created that trick. That's incredible. So, so there's a creative story, right? Like, um, so how many skateboarders are, are credited with a trick? Well, I've seen, in, you know, there's competitions in Toronto and I, I've seen some of these guys skate, these young guys, and it looks like they're making up tricks as they go, go along. Like, I do think that these people make them up on the spot and they hit them in competition. So, you know, I don't know what the level of like perfection is with these guys, but they, they, they just, it's kind of like Jay Adams, Jay Adams from the Z boys. He, he, he turned mistakes into tricks and then he was done with it. And he moved on to the next thing. He never actually practiced, which may have been part of his downfall. Hmm. It was like, you know, just, he would, he would catch waves in surf competitions after they told him to let somebody else take the wave because he didn't want to lose a good wave. Right. He was like a pure opportunist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think he ever wanted to become a professional surfer or skateboarder. I think he just sort of fell into it. He just wanted to skate. Like that was it. Wow. We were sort of like that too, but not to that. We never became famous for it like he did. Right. You know? the, the level of discipline that it requires to be like, to get good at skateboarding is something I was never able to do. Like I, I grew up skateboarding a bit and, my friends were always more into it than I was, but they would spend hours after school trying to get a kickflip. Yeah. Um, it was like, and then they'd go in their basement when it started raining and they'd do it on the carpet. Um, it's, it's a ton of work. Kickflip is a hard trick. And for like, I learned how to do an ollie, I think in my forties. I didn't even know what an ollie yeah. was. And there was like, well, it, it wasn't, it wasn't even invented when you were starting. No, right? um, there was a guy named Alan Gelfand, I think his name was, and he did an ollie on the vert, like an ollie air. So, okay. so they knew how to do it in the, and that was just to the tail end. And I never would have attempted such a thing because I didn't have the access to the, the parks closed and whatever. Like it was kind of, it was kind of dying. I really only did it for three years in, in high school, but um, uh, yeah, that was a trick. And I, I remember that was a trick that was, was created in the eighties, I think. And I could not, when somebody tried to show me what it was, I was just like, that's not possible. It defies all logic and all, you know, anything, any sort of science. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's such a difficult trick. And, and of course, and, and one could argue it's the basis of almost all tricks that people do because they ollie up things and off things. And, and now you see these crazy videos people used to have video parts and they'd spend a year shooting a video part. Now people take their, their iPhones and they shoot a friend doing this incredible trick and they just post it. And that's what goes viral. And the tricks yeah. are insane. Like the, the like they, they'll do an ollie or a kickflip and in midair, they'll flick the board the other way with their toe and then land on it. <laughs> like it's, it's like not, it's not, not possible, but they, but it's like weekend warriors. Weekend warriors are yeah. doing this. 
it's not possible until someone does it and then everyone says that's super cool i want to do that too yeah. <laughs> yeah and they'll do it and and the slams that these guys take to learn a trick is yeah it's it's their bone shaking slams and they're yeah. and they're, they're they're nutters too if they're on a railing hmm. you can imagine what that is so for sure <laughs> yeah yeah, I know. Um, I, I know you're always padded up, and um, I probably should have done a, a, a bit more of the pads in my days. But luckily, most of my injuries were not in skateboarding. Well, not luckily, but they were mostly in parkour, which is zero padding at all. <laughs> it's yeah. just your body. Talking about movies, uh, Casino Royale opens with one of the best yeah. parkour scenes, best Bond openings I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. Sebastian Fouquet. So uh, he actually, the guy in that scene is credited with um, inventing the sport of free running. So parkour is credited uh, with David Bell, who's a French guy. Um, and he popularized this sort of like getting from point A to point B as efficiently as possible. Um, uh, and then Sebastian Foucan was one of his contemporaries. He integrated some style into it and some gymnastics and let's not just be as efficient as possible. Mm-hmm. Let's get style. some flips in yeah. and put some style into it. And so that movie, I think a lot of people would say, really took free running into the mainstream. I mean, it had art like I think at that point free running and parkour were kind of like skateboarding culture and that there was a lot of low budget videos being made. But I think after that, um it was a lot easier for parkour athletes to get stunt work mm-hmm. or or people to actually want to invest in these videos. Right. It's a it's, Yeah, but that's that, great. Like I couldn't believe it watching that. It's yeah. Great. It's a long scene too. Yeah. Lot, the, guy, the guy's doing a lot of cool tricks. And the thing on the crane, yeah. they go up on the crane. It's crazy. The stunts that they do now in movies is incredible. I mean, just the endurance and just the pure physical talent. That's why there's such a big push to like get like places like uh, award shows like the Oscars to recognize that mm-hmm. talent, you know, what they do. I don't know if you guys oh, have yeah. heard of or seen the movie Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, yeah. yeah. The Many. stuff they did in that movie. Oh my god! The fact that was all you know the stunts that they were doing and with the cars and the actors flying from one to the other, the guy who's like uh, ripping on the guitar with yeah. like flames shooting out, and that's all real. That's not CG. That is real. Yeah. I mean, that is just that's an achievement. I mean, just the stunts and the artwork, the coordination to do that. I mean, we always talk about movies in terms of like the story and the acting, but that is powerful stuff to do action in that way. That's very impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, visual. I love. I, oh, go ahead. Go on, Charlie. Sorry. Oh, visual. I was just gonna say, I, I love the um the video of the raw footage from Mad Max Fury Road, mm-hmm. and it's like ninety nine percent of the movie, like just the right off the cameras. It was like, oh, this they actually did all of this. There's a a famous scene where, where there's a guy that's mortally wounded, and he he jumps off of uh, the tanker. Yeah, Do you know the scene I'm talking about. He kind of does this like a swan dive. Oh, <laughs> and he's, yeah. he's got um, two of those thunder sticks, and he when he lands, he blows up a car. Like oh he, yeah! But he he you know they're 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 trying to get to Valhalla, and it's like witness me, and you, you do these like you know you, you hear your salute to the world, and yeah, it's the guys who spray paint their teeth there. Yeah. <laughs> right, know, he does guys. that before, right? Yeah, With the chrome, and uh, so you can see online the way they shot the scene. It's like it's like three seconds maximum like it just goes by but they actually they actually built like um a platform um like some scaffolding on the back of the tanker and 
he did do a swan dive off the tanker, or some guy did. That's crazy. And he had, they had ropes on him, and before he hit the car, they pulled him up, so he didn't hit the car. And so <laughs> a, guy, a guy actually did that <laughs> swan dive. Fearless. <laughs> and, and it's just it's it's almost like a throwaway scene, like not throwaway, but it just goes by so fast. You go like, oh, another stunt, right? But it's like it took like all day to do it. Oh yeah, yeah. Seconds. I mean, it took them, uh, I think, over three years to film, just to film the movie itself because of all the coordination with the cars and the actors and all the stunts to do that. Like, when we see it, we think it's just, oh, it's simple, but it's meant to look that way. You know, but like, there's just the amount of hours of just not just planning, but actually perfecting that just to get that right. Uh, you know what else is funny is the, like, the Mad Max knockoff films. Like, you'll see these like, Italian movies of guys trying to, like, directly trying to imitate that. And when you see it done poorly, you, you realize... Like you, you know, appreciate guys, it more. Yeah, guys jumping from one truck to another. Like if it's not shot right, if you can't see yeah. where he's leaving and where he's going to, and and it looks ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, George Miller. Like, what's in that guy's head? Again, talk about creative genius, where he's got this idea. And I don't, I don't think Tom Hardy enjoyed the making of that movie. Like it seemed like they were making it up as they were going along. Not the technicality of the stunts, but the storyline. Like George Miller would say, okay, now we're just going to blow a bunch of things up. And it was like, really? Or like, I think, I think, I think Tom Hardy only has 10 lines in the whole movie. He just grunts and does a bunch of like, and here's a guy whose acting range is like huge, right? Oh yeah. And like for a guy who's kind of like stereotyped online through memes of he just always has like a mask on in some way. And like for yeah. most of the movie he doesn't have a mask on, but he doesn't say much either. So poor guy. But I mean in the way it's like, like a tragic story. Yeah, like he's like a, he's like a background character in his own film, you know. Yeah. Most of the yeah. focus is on Furiosa and like her story right. and the storyline with the wives and getting them away. But yeah, he's uh, just a tag along. Yeah, basically. He falls into it. Which is which is how he is in all the movies, right? He's not well, certainly in the second one, he's just sort of, hey, you know, if you, uh, um, you know, he, he, he gets the gyro captain and he's holding him hostage. The gyro captain says, he, if, he, if you go in there, you can get your gas. And he's like, yeah, okay, I'll get my gas. I'll get out of here. And and he doesn't, he's not really the hero. He's really, really, truly. No, he, he, yeah, he's just kind of like a bystander who just gets caught up in some crazy hijinks. Like he's not, um, he's not Rambo. That's not who he is. He's just yeah. a guy who's just in the post-apocalypse trying to survive and then he gets caught up in all these crazy adventures right it's funny it's funny but it's effective it's very effective how they do it and they're making another one i think with a prequel centered on furiosa's character which will be fun to see it's almost like the big lebowski like jeff lebowski as a character he's he he's this guy who never wanted to be involved in this whole caper (laughs) Um, and he got sucked in and he's like the last person who should be involved in it he just wants to get back to bowling for a guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, to take us back a little from this tangent, yeah. um, and I guess to relate it a little to uh, low budget, you're talking about the low budget uh, oh, yeah. Mad Max knockoffs. Um, one low budget thing we were talking about, which I thought was really interesting, is is home recording. So we had another we had another guest on, Olivia, who was she's doing these really interesting things with home recording and collaboration. In fact, like she'll record a part, video and audio, send it to someone else. They layer it on top of Mm. one another and they're essentially creating a song in real time. Um, So what do you think are some of like the the creative opportunities for home recording and um, the good that it can produce? 
I'll, I'll start by saying something that Russ Broom told me that, that should be shared with anybody that wants to share tracks with somebody else. And that what he said to me, because we were, uh, he played on my, some of my children's albums as well. And he said to me, Charlie, if you're going to send me a track, four clicks, like a, a, a bar of, like that sets the tempo, then a bar of nothing, then your song. So that if you're sharing tracks, you can, if you can't get the tempo right, if you can't get the beginning right, you can line up the clicks. And it's the easiest way to trade tracks. And I do that with my students. And if they don't do the four clicks, it sometimes they just, it, it, you can't line it up. Mm. So, so just a technical thing, if anybody's going to do that. Um, so what, what, was, sorry, what was your question about, like, what are the, what's the creatives like? Some of the, the creative opportunities that home recording um, can bring and the advantages of like home recording as a musician. Well, it's great for pre-production and practicing, like first and foremost. Um, like it's cheaper. You can do whatever you want. You can try out a million things before you're paying somebody, a producer, an engineer, for studio time to go in. Um, you can, you can, you have unlimited tracks. You can always change the tempo or the structure, um, and you can add effects. A lot of these computers now have internal sounds. So I was working on a track. It's kind of it's kind of based on a riff. Um, kind of almost sounds like "Are You Gonna Go My Way?" Maybe that you know how that song is based on a guitar riff, and it's kind of like that. And I just brought my guitar. I didn't want to bring my amp down, so I just brought my electric guitar downstairs to my. And then it has different um, uh, guitar amplifiers in in like in GarageBand or or logic whatever you're using oh, so yeah. you don't need to use it's it's hard to set up a mic and record an amp or record with an amp yeah right and then if you don't like it if you, you don't like that sound so if you record clean with a guitar and then you just start switching the amps around do you think that the possibilities of home recording are, are making kind of traditional recording studios obsolete or they still have like a really important function well it depends if you want to do something live if you want to record four people at once, like a rock band, you need a recording studio. You can't really do it in your basement. I, I, I can't imagine how you would. I mean, you, you could. I suppose you could, but it'd be a lot of work. Um, and uh, like, there's you can't. You, I think it's very hard to get the sound that you get in, in a real recording studio, like with a real mixing board, like a big mm -hmm. mixing board. I think. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think they, I don't think they can replace that. And it's really something to consider if you're like trying to get your tracks played online somewhere, like or or play like playlisted somewhere. If you're like, I have a friend that does these. He does everything himself. He does. He writes the song. He sings it. He plays all the instruments. He records it. He mixes it. He masters it. Then he does a video, and then and he's hoping it's going to get playlisted. I'm thinking like, okay, I guess it's possible. Like there's, you know, Prince can do, maybe could do it, or maybe Todd Rundgren or somebody, but like, look at, look at the credits of the people you're competing against. Look at the credits on the song. There's like 20 people involved. Hmm. You have somebody that records it. You have somebody that mixes it. You have somebody that does the mastering. It goes through different sets of years. And to me, like this, like there's a oneness. That's a good point. Yeah. You, you want to avoid that oneness. I, I, I don't think Todd Rundgren succeeded at making like good records by himself. I, I don't think you can. I think the point is that you mix ideas with people. Yeah, you're putting an incredible amount of both pressure and trust in yourself that like I will be able to hear it perfectly and make all the adjustments 
to make this sound good to every listener. Yeah, I, I don't think it's possible. Like you're talking about a genius level aptitude at doing it. But it sort of yeah. takes the fun out of it. I mean, who is that really what you want to try and do? Like, or wouldn't you rather like jam with a friend? Like, right. why, why not do have somebody else do your harmonies? And now it is easy. I mean, now you just fly the tracks back and forth. It's so it's a great way to join a community. And I think that's what it's about, you know, like being part of the community, not like thinking, you know, it all thinking that you don't know it all thinking that you want input into what you're doing. Right. And it helps because it can also kind of humble yourself from because you get all those different types of perspectives on your work and that can just help you improve and be a better artist as you go. Yeah, it's a part of a learning process. It's like you're knocked out of your comfort zone. You know, like yeah, people like they're not as smart and as not as correct as they think they are. Like no, 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 no. It's just not. You know? No, I'm like, like even, uh, go ahead. Okay, no, sorry, but uh, no, it's just like this idea of like arts and creators, like, you know, I don't think we should ever be totally, totally comfortable. Like we should always be proud of our work, but we don't get to, don't want to get to a space where we're totally comfortable, where it's like, okay, the way I see it is exactly the way it is. Like you want to hear some of those input, even if it's just the opinion, because it kind of just makes you think it's just a way that we can just do it a little bit better and may not always come from yourself, but it can help whatever it is that you're working towards too. Absolutely. And it's more fun. Like who wants to sit alone in like in a studio, especially now with COVID, like you're alone enough. <laughs> like invite a friend. Yeah. People are not as good yeah. at singing as they think they are also like singing is the hardest. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Like you hear all these marketing <laughs> schemes. I got playlisted here and I got playlisted. like, just get a good vocalist and you'll get playlisted. <laughs> <laughs> Like, because everyone wants to sing their own songs. Yeah, everybody thinks they have great voices. They don't. Like, sorry. Like, I mean, I know my vocal limitations. And and on Breathe, uh, there's that break in the middle where there's kind of like, almost like a Middle Eastern melody, like a chant. Mm-hmm. The girl that sang that, like, she's an amazing singer. Yeah. You know, and it's, 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 just part, it's like mostly God-given. I mean, it's mostly just the way your voice sounds. And yes, you can learn different phrasing and different breathing and you know, enunciation or whatever, but mostly it's what you're born with. Yeah. I become really conscious of that recently because I've been um, looking into doing like freelance audiobook recordings. And um, Mm. I also record voiceover for a lot of my videos. So I have become very conscious of the way my voice sounds and also like listening to our podcasts back. Um, And you can try to fix some of the little quirks or whatever you have, but you can only really do so much. Like your voice is your voice at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's um it's a switch singer. Uh that's the solution, not try and make your voice not try and tweak your voice. <laughs> Unless you're doing like a cool effect, like you're taking the high end and the low end off of it and trying to make it sound like it's coming out of a radio or something weird. You know, yeah. then then yeah, it doesn't really matter what your voice was to begin with. But right. like most of the songs you hear on the radio, they're sung by amazing singers. I mean, if you want to take a song like uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, you go like, uh, yeah, that song should have never been a hit and, and it broke all the rules and I'm going to try and do that. Don't forget it was sung by like one of the best rock singers of all time. Yeah. So before you yeah. set out to do that, don't forget that. And, and three of the best and his bandmates were three of the most intelligent rock performers of all time. <laughs> yeah. So, like, that's what you could be. It's insane. Yeah. I was showing um, Eden 
the Live Aid performance. She had never seen the video before, so we were watching it together. Um, and oh my god, just like the the amount, the sense of that you get that Freddie Mercury is like a once in a generation musician is so palpable. Like the crowd work where that he does, where he's just going from way down low to way up high. His range, his energy, his control—it is, it's out of this world. He's thought to be like, if not the best, one of the best. What's interesting yeah. too, in terms of creativity, is um, I think it was in the movie that that um, bio they did of, of Queen. They talked about how can we write a song that will really involve the audience, and that's how they came up with that beat for "We Will Rock You." Because mm. it's so simple, and yet to do a beat like that, I think yeah, it's a simple beat. But what speed do you do it at? Like you'd have to have a good feel for like you don't want to go too slow, you don't want to go too fast. Just right so that people can do it and vibe to it. Mm-hmm. So it's deceptive, but they're they're like that's a really uh, like you you might try and write a song. Well, I want to get on the radio, so I know it's got to be simple. And I know it's got to be repetitive. Okay, so that's maybe your mindset. Um, but what about if you're trying to do a, a song that stokes your audience, then you're, what's your, what are you, how are you going to do that? What, what are your goals going to be? And like, they couldn't have done a better job like that. Every hockey game, every baseball game. It's you know, crazy. It's crazy. It's, it's, um, I can't think of the word, but everyone knows it. That the word that means that everyone knows it. It's totally universal. Universal. That's yeah. the word. I mean, I would think that you you have to do a lot of that in developing your children's songs and the performances. I mean, because you have you're you're trying to get that the response from the kids and their engagement. What is that process like in trying to write for um, that direct engagement from kids? You want to speak their language, but you have to keep it simple. Like you think, oh, to make it good, it's got to be complex. Yeah, I think it starts complex, but then you whittle it down to its like simplest elements, and that's what you go with. It's like I think we were talking before about Sting. He was saying most important, like the most sometimes the most important aspect of a hit are the notes, not the notes you play, the notes you leave out, leaving space. Um, like John Cage's two minutes and thirteen seconds of silence. Like it's a really clever idea because you understand how hypnotic and how important space is. So yeah, giving the kids their space, keeping it simple, like really, it doesn't have to be complicated, but it has to be original. It has to be unique and quirky, something that, you know, like you can do it. You can do it if you work at it and trial and error. But that's like, yeah, keep keep it simple, stupid is the key to all this, I think. Even Mm -hmm. the Mad Max movies, it's like, yeah, they went that way and then they went that way. (laughs) (laughs) When you break it down that way. It, It is a very simple, like, and that's obviously funny. I mean, I mean, it's the world's longest car chase movie, probably. Yeah. <laughs> that's what that is. It is. It is. And he was quoted saying, I want to make the whole movie like the third acts of the other movies. Like just a car chase. Yeah. I think I think it's really important to like, yes, keep it simple, stupid, but also like if you have a shtick, to know what your shtick is and to not try to do like two or three shticks at the same time. Like what is what is the mission? What are we what are we talking about here? That's what I try to do in making my videos. Mm-hmm. Like, is the goal of this video to make it fun and instructional, or is the goal of it to be relaxing and meditative and inspirational? Like you you want to know the angle that you're coming at it from and like always keep that at the for- forefront. Choose your the points you want to hit, your goals and 
Yeah, and try and, yeah, and stick with that. That's the same thing for me. Like when I work on my short film projects, like what's the story? That's the one thing I'm always trying to focus on. Like what's the story and what's the story that I'm telling? Am I being as honest to the story as much as possible? Because one of the hardest thing with filmmaking is just like, you know, is how much you insert so much of like your personal vision and removing yourself from it as much as possible in the sense like you still want to tell the story in a way that you want to be able to tell it, but not insert so much or just being able to restrain some of your, your more parts of your personality that would embellish some things. Like you just want to be able to just find that right balance. Yeah. It's not easy. And again, collaborators might bring that out in you. George Miller doesn't, he, he it's the people he collaborates with that help make his ideas come into focus. Cause I don't think he's, I don't think like not to take anything away from him, but I don't think he's that great a director or that great. And like he was, he, he's more, he's like your dad. He's a doctor. He, he, he started an emergency ward. Oh, and then really? decided to be a filmmaker. Oh, he directed, yeah. he directed Babe, Pig in the City. Yeah. <laughs> That's not what I would His expect. His true masterpiece. Babe, Pig in the City, Happy Feet, yeah. and then like four Mad Max movies. Mm-hmm. And what a which, career. Witches of Eastwood did Witches of Eastwood as well. Oh, my God. Oh, wow. Yeah. But, he's, but he is like sort of like a one-trick pony kind of guy. He's not, he, isn't a, he isn't a versatile um, director. He's a guy that gets an idea and can kind of bring it to fruition. But I think he has a lot of help with those people around him. It's true, though. But it's like, I think it's like you, it's all we kind of mentioned before about having people that kind of help bring the best out of each other without with also kind of being able to rein in, you know, the parts where we would just like go dive down rabbit holes, even though it won't be as good for the work that we're doing. You know, that's something I always try. Like I've said this a million times, like filmmaking is a team sport, but like all creativity is really a team sport, like music, especially when you're especially when you're collaborating, like you want to be able to have that trust that, you know, someone can feed, give you feedback that's honest, that can help you improve. Yeah, grow together. And yeah, there's a, I'm sure you guys were reading a lot about Eddie Van Halen when mm-hmm. he uh, passed away, but there's a lot of like, in some ways, collaboration can be easy. In some ways, it can be hard. And I don't think he ever got along with David Lee Roth. Like, they like butted heads over everything. David Lee Roth was more, like, very theatrical and campy and, you know, almost, like, silly. And Eddie, Eddie Van Halen was, like, writing these incredible guitar parts, incredible riffs. And then, like, he writes this incredible idea, and then all of a sudden the song, song becomes hot for teacher. It's like, what? <laughs> it's like, wait. That's all I had in mind. And it becomes a huge hit. And who's like, who's right? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So, I've always tried to find good collaborators, but it's not easy. It's like, it's no. easier in high school. Like Simon and Garfunkel, they're friends in high school. Like, it's easier because you're just kids and you just like, you just grow together, you know. And then as adults, you, kind you have of, a lot of you have a lot of shared experiences yeah, as well. And yeah. You get set in your ways, and you, you refuse to listen to anybody. So. Yeah, that's true. You always want to be able to be open to experimentation, even though it's not something you would initially think of. It'd be, oh, that'd be interesting to try that out just to see. And then you don't know because it could be a wonderful thing, but you have to take that that leap of faith. Yeah. Well, I wonder in some ways too, if like Eddie Van Halen and David Lee Roth's differences is also what made them like a great duo because they were able to bring two very different skill sets to the table and one could take over. Like if one... They were they they could took two different sets of strengths and brought them together. I think about MythBusters, Adam Savage and Jamie Heineman. Mm-hmm. Um, and Adam Savage, he always talks about like him and Jamie aren't friends. Really, um, they're very different. They would never be really friends in real life, but they're good collaborators because they're they 
one of them is much more scientific and calculating and the other is a little more freewheeling and artistic and inventive. So they're able to create something greater than themselves than they can together, but they're just like, they're not best buds. I, it seems like there's, there's a lot of uh, collaborators don't really get along that well, like Pink Floyd. I think there's always a lot of fighting, a lot of fighting there as well. And look at how great some of the music turned out. Like maybe the fact that you butt heads does create something that's, it's not an easy process, but it, it does create something that's you know, larger than the individuals. Yeah. So I guess, I guess it's, I guess, you know, on some songs it works and sometimes it, it doesn't. Or you just fight. Sometimes you fight and you never agree and it never works out. And sometimes it's great. Well, we are, we're starting to come up on an hour. Yeah. So yeah. why don't we, uh, why don't we switch change gears a little bit uh, to what we want to put in the spotlight this week? Um, Charlie, if you want to kick it off, I'll let you go first. But if you need a second to uh, decide what you want to talk about, I can, I can kick it off. Well, we're, our theme is creativity. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's, I think one could say that creative solutions might be a really good place to go from this conversation, like creative solutions for COVID, creative solutions for the climate crisis. Um, like creativity is, will get us through those things as well as collaboration as well as agreeing on yeah. things. Is that what, kind of what you meant or am I sort of? Sure. Yeah. It can be anything. Yeah. I mean, I have a, I have a leather crafter that I want to shout out, but oh, I, oh, I, the, I mean, I've seen so many fantastic creative solutions in Toronto. Like the um, people realize that they can put barriers between tables outside and fit more tables into an outdoor eating space while maintaining the same level yeah. of safety. And it's a way that restaurants have been able to kind of stay afloat. Creative um, solution. And like, yeah. And I remember like no one had thought of that. I mean, at the beginning it was all like socially distanced tables, but then at a certain point there's like, no, there's, there's different ways we can do this. And I, I personally think there's so much more that can be done. Uh, and just in terms of how much unused space there is right now, mm-hmm. um, empty office buildings, empty stadiums, like if something could be done with those spaces to help people who need it right now, um, I think that would do a lot for this situation that we're all in. Well, that's a great idea. Yeah. Creative. Yeah. I wonder how you I mean, put that down. Yeah. I don't know how it would be done. It's, it's just like a, an inkling. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just the idea that um, something could be done different. You know, it just takes some imagination and a little bit of willpower just to like, you know, try and make things a little bit better, no matter what the issue is. Mm-hmm. Stepping for up. Sure. Yeah. Creative solutions. Love it. We're going to need a lot of those. I, think. I agree. So I, this week, I wanted to shout out um, someone who really inspired me this week. Um, there's this podcast I really enjoy. It's called the Make Ideas Reality Podcast. Um, uh, it's hosted by Justin White, a.k.a. the Garage Avenger, fan, a wonderful Australian-Norwegian guy. And he had on Jonathan Jamieson, who is a co-owner of JJ Leathersmith. So I do a lot of leather crafting and a buddy was recommending this episode to me for a while and I finally got around to listening to listening to it. Number one, this guy has an incredible story. He's, he's Canadian. He grew up in PEI um, and sort of was backpacking around the world and kind of discovered leather craft in terms of like, he really just wanted to make himself this backpack. And that's like all, that was like what he became fixated on uh, throughout his trip. And he kind of used the last of his money. He actually took the money he was going to take to fly back and to get supplies to make this leather backpack. And now years later, 
he owns a leather, handmade leather goods business in Ecuador with this guy, Humbi Yabrila. Um, started an entirely new life for himself there and makes beautiful stuff. So number one, his story is just very inspirational. He, he talks a lot about like following his gut and developing good intuition because that's essentially how he got to where he is now. But I have been, I really want to make a leather backpack. So I felt like a big kindred, spin, kindred spirit with him and like just being hyper fixated on this like really random goal. <laughs> um, so I was looking at his page and they do beautiful, beautiful work and um, definitely got some inspiration for the backpack that I want to make. Um, but yeah, I'll link that in the show notes. JJ Leathersmith, they do really fantastic work. So uh, for my Into the Spotlight, this episode is uh, a folk uh, musician, folk singer called Harry Hudson, who is from Englewood, Englewood, New Jersey. And he's a really nice up and coming folk musician who's who's really kind of like advancing folk music, but also drawing upon elements of rock and pop music into it in a way that he blends it all together really nicely. And he just released his newest album I just saw yesterday. Hey, I'm here for you. So I thought I listened to it. I thought I, re- I liked it a lot. I also liked his first album, uh, his first album, Yesterday's Tomorrow's Night, which I think you guys would really like as well. I mean, I don't have really a long paragraph personal <laughs> reference for this other than the fact that he's an up and coming musician, but also because as I learned about him, he he was diagnosed with Lich, uh, Hodg- Hodgkin's lymphoma at the age of 20. And he was able to recover from that. And he was able to keep on and find success with this music, which is nice to see. And like, I know like, you know, people who go, we go all go through adversity and personal challenges all the time, but it's just nice to see that, you know, someone's able to continue making the music that they love, finding success with it. And not only that, because I know like when we go through these things, like I know it doesn't impact our talent as creators, as artists, but it impacts the way that we create and why we create. And like I noticed in a lot of his songs, it relates to like a lot of those deep personal issues. And I thought it's just, yeah, it's nice for someone to take elements of their personality that can be hard to translate into their art and they're able to do it in a way that's very effective and compelling. So that's why I highlight him for this episode. He was sort of a singer-songwriter writing about his observations his personal like take on something yeah yeah well exactly like in the fact that he was able to recover from that because a lot of his first early songs deal a lot with that and from there he was able to translate more and more his musical style that way into like the way that it is now because like even though we can't we can't ignore things in our life that happen to us it just becomes a part of our creativity either whether we're conscious or unconscious of it it's uh, it's very interesting and, and, and amazing that he could overcome his illness and keep keep going yeah because that could be something that would just stop you and sort of force you more into like a mainstream kind of non-creative yeah. existence yeah exactly so but he kept on going it's it's actually really kind of poignant because i was just talking with some friends recently about how the the harsh realities of life sometimes can like kind of tear you out of a creative flow i find like not something i wasn't even talking about anything as extreme as being diagnosed with lymphoma but like your car has problems and you have to go deal with those car problems but you felt like you were in this great kind of like mental and physical space Mm. and creating and inventing i I also find it with just like um some of the mundane parts of life like having to go to a big box store like canadian tire home depot and seeing all like the mass-produced crap while i'm trying to make (laughs) things that i think is really nice and it's just like 
just trying to become a little more resilient to that and not let those things affect me. Right. Um, that's a, that's a good inspiration for that. For sure. For sure. Um, Charlie, I did have one more question for you though. If oh, you don't mind. okay. Sure. Because I know like teaching music to kids, what you're doing is a, is a phenomenal thing. You know, it's, it's, you know, being able to help spur their creativity, help them grow and everything. And all the years that you have been doing this, what have you learned from teaching music to kids? What have you learned along the way from that? Um, I, I think that if you can impart to kids like the joy of music as opposed to like the harsh reality of music, mm. like if they, if they develop a love for it and a curiosity about it, if you like, that would be my goal as a teacher. Like when I, when I was a kid, I did a lot of the conservatory exams and a very sort of rigid piano teacher. And I, I think that's good in a lot of ways, but I don't, I don't know if that's what it's about for most people. And, um, yeah, I think that you have to respect that part of people's personalities. It's like, give them a song they want to play. Don't teach them how to play piano. Teach them how to play what they want to learn on piano. Like, give them the song. That mm -hmm. goes for all level of students. Um, but I do think that with COVID and everything, there's like it's so easy to, you know, write something on GarageBand. And when I mean write something, it could be anything, and just share it with your friend and ask your hey. You, you contribute something to my track, I'll contribute something to your track and just like share the experience and just have fun and socialize. And I think that's, I think music is more of a social thing. I don't think it's like, I don't think it's something that you just stand there and do alone. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think enjoy that. It's easier yeah. way to get through the, like this, this time, I think. Certainly my plan. Yeah. I just, I just like, I'm buying a little, extra, a little more gear. And like, because I'm doing those open mics, there's a, I know a bunch of musicians online that I could reach out to and say, you know, here's my track. You want, can you send me a, do a harmony for me? Or can you do this or do that for fun? Right. Awesome. That's, that's, great. that's a perfect note to end on. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, well, if you want to hear some of Charlie's music. Uh, number one, we're going to play Breathe at the end of this episode, which we mentioned multiple times um, throughout the course of the episode. But if you want to listen to more of it, you can go to littlefingersmusic.com. You can find Charlie on Instagram at littlefingersmusicto. I don't actually, we, I don't know if we even said in the episode that that is the name of your business, Little Fingers Music. Yeah, that's the name. <laughs> that's what, yeah, that's the big that's shout out. That's what I'm saying when I'm saying. That's the big shout um, yeah, we'll we'll put it early on in the show notes in the title. Yeah. Um, and yeah, didn't stop Facebook. You, you can find it there as well. <laughs> um, Charlie, is there is there anywhere else where you want to direct people where they can find your stuff? Um, I've, I've been all. Um, I I think it's uh, like you can buy it online. It's, it's through cdbaby.com. I I think that they I think they put it everywhere. Like I think just Google it. Or just email me okay. if you want. Me, if you want me to send you a track, um, but yeah, people like every once in a while, like like I, they've sold something of mine. They send me some money, not huge sums, but it's it's out there somewhere. I, you know, I should have double checked that before I came online here. But uh, yeah, it's <laughs> it's all good. It's funny. Sweet. All right. Um, well, Charlie, thank you so much. This was a great conversation. We won't take up too much more of your time. Thank Thanks you. for having me, Ryan. Nice meeting you. It's nice meeting you. Yeah. Our pleasure. Yeah, and good luck with all the leather work and the backpacks. And it's great that you're uh, you're doing all that. So. It's
Thank great, you. Great forum for you. Thank you. All right. Have a great day. Give my best Bye. to Eden. Will do. Okay. Right. I guess. Bye. All right. Bye. Ciao. Underwater dungeon. It's safer than outside. I won't say I'm sorry for all the times you lied. Unpack the bags I carried in this ocean of shade. Unshackled in my mind. Blood mixes with the I just wanna breathe